Over the past six episodes, we've explored how the three-act structure materialises in stage plays, with some passing reference to how it works in the movies, so I thought that I'd dedicate an episode to how the three-act structure relates to film. We've talked a lot about how the three-act structure relates to drama, but haven't really explored, other than through The Game of Two Halves, how it relates to comedy. So, as it's coming up to Christmas, and it's my favourite movie of all time, I thought I'd explore how the three-act structure relates to the 1989 classic, When Harry Met Sally. The screenplay was written by Nora Ephron, and the movie directed by Rob Reiner. It was a game-changing, genre-defining piece of movie-making. Love or hate a rom-com, this is the original and the best. While researching for this episode, I obviously watched the film, again, twice. The first time because it's my ritual for around this time of year to get me into the Christmas spirit, but the second time to affirm the elements of structure that I couldn't help but take note of the first time. This is my analysis of the film. It might not necessarily be everyone's take on it, but I think it sits comfortably enough within the construct of the three acts as defined by the previous six episodes of the Right for the Stage podcast. Although we're talking about film here, there are still plenty of ideas in this episode that will serve to help playwrights, so don't panic. We'll explore the role of the central character, which we haven't looked at yet, as well as methods that bring the reality of the three-act structure to life. The script to When Harry Met Sally is quite unique in screenplay writing in that it comprises of a sequence of very long scenes, rather than relying on the quick-cut action more typically found in film. The script should lend itself to the stage, although we'll be exploring the critically panned 2004 adaptation starring Luke Perry and Alison Hannigan at London's Theatre Royal Haymarket later on. There are three clear acts in this film, but what's most interesting is how they're used. We'll discover that Act 1 is long, while the rising action of Act 2 is unusually short, the opening of the act propelled by a montage and the entirety of the rising action taking place in just over 10 minutes of screen time. There's a school of thought that says that Act 1 should achieve its mandatory aims of establishing the problem of the world, character, character objective and inciting incident in the most succinct of ways with a running length of around 20 to 30 minutes. But Act 1 of When Harry Met Sally, you could say, is a mini-movie in its own right, with a distinct beginning, middle and end, taking its time to reach the inciting incident. Through constant comic tension, this clever construct shows real confidence in the characters, the world of the story and the complexity of relationships. When Harry Met Sally is a classic romantic comedy, a story of triumph through adversity, a road trip, a passage through 1980s boho New York, a friendship of letting go and of finding the one true love. Let's start off by making a decision about who the protagonist is. Obviously, you could say that there are two protagonists, Harry and Sally, but we have to really examine the entirety of the story to properly identify the roles. What we haven't really talked about is the role of the central character. We've talked about the protagonist and the antagonist, but we've never really mentioned the central character. In The Game of Two Halves, Simon is the central character, while Pete is the protagonist and Tom is the antagonist. The central character is the character that the story pivots around. They're sometimes referred to as the agent for change, but they don't necessarily change themselves as a result of the action of the story. 
They can, of course, change and develop, but the change won't have been as significant for them. So let's examine the closing scene of When Harry Met Sally. At the start of the movie, Harry is an unshakable pessimist, aloof, rigid, indifferent. But he's also witty and insightful, perhaps what we might today describe as woke. He claims to have a dark side, but is really just a guy chasing his tail, jumping into bed with every woman who will say yes. But his true belief, as we discover through the action of the story, is that relationships are doomed to fail. So why even try? Sally, in the opening scene, comes across as a little uptight, but the eternal optimist, a decision maker. And perhaps this is her problem. She's very quick to make decisions and is too steadfast once she's made them, a trait that we see more of later in the story. In the opening scene, Harry snogs Amanda as Sally waits for him in the car, waiting for them both to travel from Chicago to New York. She beeps the horn, snapping Harry and Amanda out of their love lock. Sally is practical, down-to-earth and driven. When she orders food from the diner in Act 1, she insists on condiments being left on the side or not included if the pie isn't hot. She's very specific, knows her own mind and wants what she wants. Perhaps you could say that she's a little too rigid. She's driving to New York so that her life can start. Although it's never made explicit, you know that she has a plan about how life is going to work out. So, cut to the closing speech. The first time we met, we hated each other. No, you didn't hate me, I hated you. The second time we met, you didn't even remember me. I did too, I remembered you. The third time we met, we became friends. We were friends for a long time. And then we weren't. And then we fell in love. Three months later, we got married. And it only took three months. Twelve years and three months. We had this. We had a really wonderful wedding. It was. It was. It was beautiful. great. We had this enormous uh, coconut cake. A huge coconut cake with the with the tears, and there was this, this very rich chocolate sauce on the side. Right, because not everybody likes it on the cake because it makes it very soggy. Particularly the coconut soaks up a lot of that stuff. You really, it's important to keep it on the side. Right. So it's Harry that's changed. He's gone from a point of utter pessimism and a sense that all relationships are doomed to settled, happy and flexible with a positive outlook on the world. The problem of the world for Harry at the beginning of the story is his naive and unusually faithful belief in his own extremely bleak view of the world with no give. Whereas Sally, on the other hand, is pretty much the total opposite, the eternal optimist. She's perhaps not quite so rigid at the end of the film, but she still likes things her way on the side. The fact that Sally can hold her own is why they clash. In fact, Sally kind of gets things her, way in, her own way in the end. So it's Harry who really goes on the journey in this film, and he, therefore, is the protagonist. Which kind of begs the question, who is the antagonist? This movie is essentially a four-hander between Harry, played by Billy Crystal, Sally, played by Meg Ryan, Marie, played by Carrie Fisher, and Jess, Harry's best friend, played by Bruno Kirby. Marie and Jess really embody the subplot as they don't really enter the story until the very end of Act 1, coming into their own in Act 2. Of course, there are other supporting characters, Joe, Alice, Amanda and Helen, but in the stage play version, they would never be seen and just mentioned. They're central to the action, but the action would remain the same with just a mention. In this movie, you could say that Harry is the protagonist and the antagonist, 
His worldview is what is holding him back. The fact that he's out the door the second he wakes up next to his previous night's conquest is his true demon. You could say that Sally equally has a similar antagonism in herself. If only she'd let herself loose for a while, she might allow herself to be happy. Harry and Sally antagonise each other. And in this rare context, that's enough to drive the, the action of the entire story. So being neither specifically defined as the antagonist or the protagonist, Sally becomes the central character, the agent for change, as she becomes the reason that Harry finally faces his demons and overcomes the problem of the world that has been holding him back from his ultimate happiness. There are little vignette interviews from ageing couples discussing the moment they fell in love that reinforce the theme throughout the story and used to indicate the passing of time in this film. While charming and a clever device to separate the chapters of the story, we won't be analysing those. There's plenty more to explore. Act 1 opens with the first meeting. First sight of our heroes in 1977. It's the last day of college and they're both moving on from the University of Chicago to New York to start anew. But it's how they're moving on that's particularly telling. Harry is kissing Amanda and in no rush to get started on the journey. Sally clears her throat to get their attention and eventually beeps the car horn to indicate that she's being serious. She wants to go. This is part of her practical side. She demonstrates no real attachment or sadness for leaving the place she's spent the last three years. It was a functional necessity of her life and she wants to move on to the next chapter. So, while Harry is in no rush to move on, Sally is chomping at the bit to get going. Both very telling actions illustrating the dominant characteristics of both characters, immediately setting up the tensions for what is to drive the entire movie. This open se opening scene, let's call it scene one, is uncharacteristically short for this movie, at just a minute or two in duration. But we've successfully and succinctly established the tension that is going to sustain the entirety of the journey. We pull off into scene two, the journey begins. Sally has it all figured out, proudly listing the itinerary for the journey, complete with the optimum locations to swap driving duties. However, Harry eats grapes and gobs the seeds out of the window, beautifully punctuating the flow of the conversation, hilariously spitting onto the inside of the window. Harry wants to know the story of Sally's life, characteristically intense. Suppose nothing happens to you and you die a New York death that no one notices until the smell drifts down the hall, he asks. The shot cuts to the exterior of the car, but we're still constructively within the same scene. Amanda mentioned you have a dark side, says Sally, an accusation he indulges in, belittling Sally for being simplistic and too happy-go-lucky to even notice life. When I buy a, a new book, I read the last page in case I die before the book ends. That, my friend, is a dark side, he proudly proclaims. He's intense, grumpy and not particularly easy to get on with, and we feel Sally's dread that she's about to spend 18 hours in the car with this man. Crucially, Sally can hold her own, and this defines their relationship throughout the film. In the meantime, you're going to ruin your life waiting for death, she states, punctuated by Harry spitting a grape pip out of the window. 
into scene three, the diner. The scene begins mid-argument in the car. Sally states that she wouldn't want to stay with Bogart in Casablanca, married to a guy who runs a bar, when she could be the Countess of Czechoslovakia. This is defining dialogue for Sally, because that opinion changes later on in the film, showing how she has developed as a character. The argument drifts into the diner, but not before Harry has accused Sally of never having had great sex yet. Furied, Sally follows him into the diner, announcing at the top of her voice that she's had lots of great sex, much to her humiliation as she realises that the room has gone silent. Her reaction is to shrink and find her seat, very telling of her uptight ways and a nod and a unity with one of the most famous scenes of the film that happens during the rising action of Act 2 where she fakes an orgasm in a New York diner. This initial diner scene is full of comic tension while Harry consistently winds Sally up and we discover her unique way of ordering her food. It looks like they might get on until Harry comes onto Sally which she rejects in disgust. Scene five is five years later. Sally is kissing Joe goodbye at the airport and Harry spots Joe. They used to be roommates when Harry first moved to New York. There's an awkward interaction while both Harry and Sally recognise each other but pretend not to know each other. Sally is relieved when, she, when he leaves. She says that she can't recall his name but of course she can. She tells Joe that they'd had this night together five years previously. Joe is immediately suspicious, showing that he knows just what Harry is like. Sally recalls that Harry stated that men and women can't be friends. It still jars with her. Scene six is the flight, where Harry forces himself into Sally's neighbouring seat. He announces that he's getting married, something that Sally finds impossible to believe. Harry disturbs Sally somewhat with his dark insight that men want to leave the nuptial bed the very second the sex finishes, whereas Sally wants to be held all night, passively aggressively suggesting that Sally has the problem. This reminds Sally why they're never going to be friends. This scene is great fun, but shows us that although Harry appears to have moved on, the old pessimism, the problem of the world, is still there loud and clear. After this briefer chapter two, we jump five years on to chapter three, moving more briskly towards the climax of act one. Sally has just split with Joe, but in her typically practical way, she states to her two girlfriends that she's fine with it. She wanted a family and Joe didn't, so they parted. It was a mutual adult decision. Very Sally. We meet Marie for the first time. In contrast with the oddly together Sally, Marie is a desperate singleton and serial adulterer, determined above all else to finally walk down the aisle. Although we're being introduced to new characters here, we're still in Act 1 territory because the inciting incident that propels the dramatic thrust of the story hasn't happened yet. Mary goes through a creepy Rolodex to attempt to set Sally up with Alex Anderson, who is entirely inappropriate. They've hit their 30s, and Marie suggests that Sally find someone to marry quickly before someone else marries her husband. Cut to the ball game with Harry and Jess, Harry's best friend. Harry is going to get a divorce from Helen, ultimately reinforcing the problem of the world that all relationships are doomed. 
This is why we're still over half an hour later in Act One. He tells Jess of Helen's cold departure, leaving him for Ira. We discover Jess is a geekier, humorless but lovable, more matter-of-fact version of Harry. And he tries to reassure Harry that he understands the subtext of Helen's actions, all during the wonderful punctuation of inappropriately timed Mexican waves. Harry feels that his previous caution in life was correct and that he was wrong to let himself be vulnerable by entering into a meaningful relationship. He's hit his low point, he's broken and vulnerable. We cut to Sally and Marie in a bookshop where Harry lurks in the personal growth section. An irony that's not lost within the unity of the problem of the world. Harry and Sally meet again. This time they've both lost a little of their initial astringency. Both battered and broken a little by life, they see something in each other that they never saw before. They have lunch and discover that they can talk to each other openly without worrying about whether the other is judging them. The inciting incident finally takes place in the park where Sally asks Harry if he would like to go out for dinner with her. And he agrees, realising that she's the first attractive woman he's ever met that he hasn't wanted to go to bed with. The decision for Harry to go out for dinner on a purely platonic basis is the inciting incident, because it's the first real challenge to the central question, can men and women ever be friends? And so we have a 34-minute Act 1, uncharacteristically long, followed by an uncharacteristically short rising action of Act 2, which really just lasts for the next 10 minutes of the film. Act 2 sees Harry and Sally become friends, and crucially, more and more important to each other. They both have the grief of loss to deal with, although Sally seems to have dealt with it rather too quickly and efficiently. Of course, that's Sally's unemotional practicality coming back to haunt her. All the while, Harry plunges into, dis into despair. This is all presented and shown economically via a montage, propelling some necessary exposition to get us to the next pl plot point. They watch the closing sequence of Casablanca from their singleton beds. Sally claimed that she would have stayed with Bogart, in contrast to the diner conversation earlier, demonstrating the development of her character. We hear, we hear Bogart say, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. The screenwriter marbling a little theme into her narrative. We next see them at the museum. All is going well. Their friendship is solidified. But the problem is that they, to the outside world, look like lovers on a day out. Let's go back to the problem of the world here. Harry's pessimistic view of the world as reinforced by Helen's infidelity. He's at his most vulnerable and further put to the test in this scene as Sally announces that she has a date. This is a real turning point in the story, challenging the idea that they might be coming more than just friends. It's awkward, but they get through it. But when Sally suggests that Harry should return to the dating field, he steadfastly denies that he's ready. by the confidence they've given each other, they go on more dates behind the scenes and they finally meet at the diner for the infamous orgasm scene. Harry divulges to Sally that after sex he invents an excuse and makes a swifty exit, 
reinforcing what he said earlier during the scene on the aeroplane, which disgusted her then and disgusts her now. This is central to Harry's pessimism, and indicative that he hasn't changed at all from the pessimistic cynic at the beginning of the story. The problem of the world persists. Sally is so disappointed and angered by Harry's cold treatment of the women he sleeps with that she pronounces, I'm so glad I never got involved with you. Although they're in conflict, this is all still good, clean comic fun. Harry counters that the women he sleeps with have a bloody good time, but Sally isn't so convinced. In fact, she's so unconvinced that she shows Harry exactly how he can never tell whether those women are being honest in their response to his lovemaking. She loudly and outrageously fakes an orgasm in the middle of a crowded diner, a piece of movie magic to demonstrate that all women have faked it at some stage. Crucially, this scene also demonstrates Sally's growth from the uptight prude who accidentally announces to the diner in Act 1 that she's had plenty of great sex, to the strong, confident woman with understanding of the world around her. So we're going to leave things there. Next week in episode seven, we'll be in conversation with Stephen M. Hornby. We'll be welcoming in a playwright to discuss their process and their work. In episode eight, we'll be covering the second half of When Harry Met Sally. It would really help if you could give us a star rating on iTunes and please let your friends know about the Right for the Stage podcast. For more information about Right for the Stage, our courses, our publications, productions and to read our blog, go to writeforthestage.co.uk. Thanks for listening.